Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The documentary Fandango at the Wall attests to the unifying power of music, culminating with a festival at the U.S.-Mexico border. The film was a project of jazz artist Arturo O'Farrell and author Kabir Segal, who is also a Grammy-winning music producer. Later this hour, Kabir Segal will tell us about the documentary, which featured prominently at the Atlanta Film Festival. First, we'll hear from the founder and director of the Atlanta Film Society, the largest and most prestigious film festival in the United States. Sundance is joining with the Atlanta Film Society to bring its Utah institution to Atlanta from January 28th through February 3rd. Chris Escobar is the founder and executive director of the Atlanta Film Society. He also owns the nonprofit Plaza Theater. He joins us now via Zoom. Chris, welcome back to City Lights. Always the greatest pleasure. Thank you, Lois. For people who love movies, Sundance is one of the most exciting events of the year, and you're bringing it to us. So please tell us how the partnership came about. Well, it was. Uh, it started as a as a conversation and a brainstorm in the summer, and uh, Sundance was knowing that things would have to work differently for the 2021 festival, and started looking around the country at different partners they could work with. And what's especially exciting is they were looking at a combination of those who put on film festivals and in independent cinemas, and it ended up being a really kind of perfect opportunity because the Plaza Theater and the Atlanta Film Society have been working so closely together even long before. I own the plaza, but really this past year was a testament to being invested in each other's survival and being able to do these drive-ins and being able to put on the Atlanta Film Festival like we did in September. And so it really created a perfect platform to be able to say we are we are poised and positioned to be able to be the Atlanta hosts for an event like this. We think Sundance and gorgeous 
images of Utah scenery and ski resorts come to mind, and Robert Redford, all of the glamour associated with it. Why is Sundance especially important to indie filmmakers? What's unique about Sundance is it's a rare opportunity where even the most unknown name, director, actor, with even the most low-budget project can really be raised to the, to the highest point of visibility, of recognition, of praise and accomplishment. It's really a transformative opportunity, even for the short filmmakers and, and, and certainly those who have feature films, to have their name known and really create a trajectory for their whole career. This is like the opportunity where someone who, to use a sports metaphor, which I'm awkward in doing typically, but, you know, would be, you know, playing maybe in college level. And this is kind of the opportunity to cross over to the majors. So there, there really is really quite not another opportunity like this, at least in North America. And so the fact that it's going to be happening for the first time across the country and in partnership with film organizations and, and independent cinemas across the country is, is unlike it's ever done, but it's so much in the spirit of what Sundance is like typically just centrally in, in Utah. What does it take for filmmakers to get their work before an audience at Sundance? Are they required to have shown works at other festivals or have support by major filmmakers? How do you showcase your new work? Well, there's not one answer to that because Sundance has a lot of different categories and they do certainly play things from studios with major backing and things like that, but that generally represents just a portion of what they play. A lot of what they play is from filmmakers, particularly in the feature films, from filmmakers who maybe their work they first saw at, on, in short film categories. But then there's even a portion of what they play that's competitively chosen out of submissions. And Sundance gets more submissions than any other film festival in the world. I like to generally brag about the Atlanta Film Festival, which is the top 10 most competitive. But Sundance is the most competitive because they get something like 13,000 submissions, typically on average. And that is really the most submissions of any other film festival on the planet. And so they might come from submissions. They might come from somebody they know. They might come from one of their industry partners. But usually what plays at Sundance has not been seen by anyone ever. And so these are usually world premieres, you know, at minimum, usually North American premieres. So this is very, very fresh content. And then usually represents the beginning of what we call in the business, sort of the festival season, the festival cycle. And usually see films that are going to go for Oscar contention, having their start at Sundance. A majority of the films that play at Sundance uh, are still owned by the artists who made them. And what they're competing for is press attention and attention from the industry and attention from the public so that that film might get purchased and then go on to distribution and then be available for mass release. So starting January 28th, where and how can audiences stream or watch these 70 plus new films? So it'll be a combination of ways. All of them will be available on Sundance's online platform. But here in Atlanta, we're going to have two very great different ways to watch content in person. We're going to have a very safe, limited indoor availability in the Plaza Theater. And we've gone through extensive safety measures from not only you know masks and temperature checks, uh, but reserved pod seating, hospital-grade ionization, the whole works. Um, 
And then we're also going to have our two drive-in screens, right? One right there at the plaza location and then the other at the dad's garage theater location. So what we'll have three screens going um, to watch in person. The exciting part though, is that there's another component to all of this, which is the beyond film side. And that's um, happening online primarily. And uh, while uh, Sundance is doing some of that programming and many of the other cities are doing that programming, this is the opportunity where we in Atlanta get to do some actual original programming of conversations around film. And, and for us, we're, we're doing those conversations around the films that, that are playing in many cases with the filmmakers and the topics and themes that those films raise. We're also gonna take the opportunity because Sundance isn't only about the films that they're playing, it's also about film as the art form and the moving image as the art form, be it that series or virtual reality. And so we're gonna include some of the, the recognizable names that are participating in Georgia's film industry. We'll have some conversations around that. And then we're also gonna have these larger conversations uh, around the topics of innovation and inclusion. And this is something that Atlanta, we have taken on uniquely to say, this is what we have to say to the national conversation. If we have an opportunity to speak to the entire worldwide audience that Sundance has, we're gonna, we're gonna try and hone in on the areas that we feel like we especially carry some weight and can bring something interesting and different to the equation. And so that's where we're really excited to not only have some of the artists involved, but we're gonna be having a whole slate of, of other in cultural institutions and gems in Atlanta that are gonna be part of this host committee that we have put together. Much, you know, not too different from sort of, you know, the Olympics, so to speak. And this is something that really we're just doing and is only happening in Atlanta is this inclusion of, of the rest of the city to really say, this is all of who we are and, and have everyone at the table. And so there's gonna be some conversations that some other terrific organizations that we're gonna be announcing uh, very shortly, are they're gonna take that lead and run with it uh, in an area that speaks to their mission and their expertise as it relates to the moving image and as it relates to innovation and inclusion. Can you tell us any of those partners yet? I can tell you some of the folks we're talking to, and I know that we'll do something to some extent. Uh, we're still trying to work out to what extent, but the Bronze Lens Film Festival, the Alliance Theater, Reimagine ATL, uh, Women in Film and Television Atlanta, the Center for Puppetry Arts, the list goes on and on and on. And, and these are all folks who, you know, are on one hand trying to figure out navigating the space, but recognize the opportunity and are trying to figure out what they can do in a meaningful way. And so we're, uh, we're gonna be excited to be formalizing those, those announcements and plans and, and really excited to share the chance to do something really cool. That's very impressive, Chris. And am I right in presuming that a lot of what has gone on this year in terms of our reckoning with racial injustice underpins your efforts in these conversations. It does. I mean, you know, I, I like this. People are saying, oh, that's really cool. You're doing it. But but I'm, I'm taking my cues from Atlanta. I mean, this is who we are. This is the Atlanta way. This is, you know, I look at the history and legacy of Atlanta. And to me, we've always been looking to include other folks and be other involved. But where where this year has really underlined is we need to have opportunities where folks can have ownership and take it and run with it. 
And so we're having different levels that organizations are participating, but those that are getting involved to the point of being host committee members, they, they literally have a stake in these screenings. They're getting a 25% of the capacities of these screenings that they can use for their members or they can, you know, the, they can get the revenue of those proceeds. I mean, for, for me, it became important to give them a, a real meaningful measurable way to have equity in, in, in every sense of the word. And so, um, and so that's something that's also quite different that we've done. And, and I would say this past year gave clarity that it, you can't just talk and it can't just be ideas and notions. You really got to walk the walk and, and, and make things real and formalize. And, and you can't just say, hey, we want you to include your voice. You, we're going to say, you got to have a seat at that table and that seat has weight and that seat has a, has a real place. So we wanted to say, okay, we're being a vehicle for this thing that this other organization is planning. They're giving us an opportunity to make it our own with some of the films that we might have an opportunity to show, but then the conversations. And, and so, uh, you know, at, I think what's really exciting is I think the nation has really realized what Atlanta and what Georgia's place is in the national picture in a way that they had perhaps been um, overlooking a little bit. And, and I feel like we, Georgia and finally, especially Atlanta finally has its seat as an important capital of, of the country alongside other many other major important cities and communities. And so, uh, and there's things that we can speak to with a different uh, legacy and gravity that not a lot of other communities necessarily have or can appreciate. And so I, I wanted that to be captured in what it is we're doing. And it's certainly much more complicated to do it this way, but it's definitely worth it. Chris, how did you decide which films would be screened in person versus streamed online? Well, that's something that's a, a, a mixed bag of what the options were. So first Sundance had to pick what are they including in the Sundance Film Festival? And that included 70 feature films. And then they needed to work with the filmmakers, the distributors and say, okay, you'll need to decide which cities you're open to this playing to and they couldn't they couldn't make it everything everywhere in part because you know if you imagine maybe a thousand people might see a certain film at Sundance well, well the idea is that this you know sets the stage for that film's future it, it isn't that entire film's you know economic moment right and so they, they couldn't just say we're gonna we're gonna sell unlimited number of tickets you know, and, and totally sort of undercut, you know, the economic opportunity that that film might have in the future. And so they are rather limited uh, in terms of how much each city can have. And so they kind of had to narrow down what films might be open to playing in what markets and then say to each city, they say, okay, here's the options that you might have. Does this speak to your community, your interest, what you think might, might be received well? And so there were some limited options that we had, and we were able to sort of pick within limited options and kind of, and, and we kind of go, okay, this one really not so much. We'd really like to see more of this. And it was very much a, a collaborative process, although it had lots of limitations and restrictions. And so we were able to kind of narrow it down to these. And there's, there's certainly some other terrific titles that we would have loved to have had. And for any number of reasons, it wasn't possible. But in some cases, it's, it's actually kind of neat because we're not letting what is playing in Atlanta be our only scope. We're actually having some conversations related to films that are strictly playing online or playing in other markets, but people here can see them online. And so we are trying to make sure we are tied to the rest of the festival in some other meaningful ways. Very important. 
Can you share with us some of this year's highlights? I know that's hard with 70-plus films, but what particularly stands out? Yeah, so we're going to have at least 12 titles. There's, there's 12 titles we're announcing right now. There might be a couple other editions out of the 70. And some of the ones that I'm personally rather excited about because I think they're especially meaningful to Atlanta. So for uh, our, usually I'm mostly documentaries, even though we're playing a mix of everything, but I feel like the documentaries especially strike, strike an important chord. Uh, we have documentary about the first Hispanic American EGOT, uh, Rina Moreno, which is especially kind of exciting for me as really the first Hispanic executive director of the organization. Um, oh, yes. And so that's exciting as the first documentary uh, about her and, and her journey as an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony award winner over her 70 year career. We also have another film directed by Rebecca Hall that stars Tessa Thompson called Passing. And anything that Tessa Thompson is in, I'm excited about. And so um, so that one's one we're especially excited about. And then another one that's really, really terrific for any fans of the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, we have a documentary about Alvin Ailey, the visionary artist. And so we're excited to have that. Um, because, and that's always, I, I like that because there's a terrific tie to you know, the performances they do at the Fox Theater or even Ailey 2 that has been at the Rialto. And so I love it when there's this kind of great tie-in to, to things locally. Everything that's going to be playing, there is an important way for which that relates to things in Atlanta. For instance, one of the films that's going to be playing online is Street Gang, uh, which is about the folks who came together to create Sesame Street. And so that created an, a wonderful opportunity to have a dialogue with the Center for Puppetry Arts about what some opportunities uh, might be there. And so there's there's just some there's some terrific content. There's going to be additions, uh, both in titles and then in the coming days, additions as far as what's happening with Beyond Film content. And the exciting part about that is all of the Beyond Film content will be free and available to the public, whereas the screenings do have a ticket price, rather if they're online or if they're here in person. But this is a great opportunity for folks to see some of the most incredible independent works. Usually the Atlanta Film Festival is the first opportunity to see stuff in this cycle each year. And much like the terrific work that the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival or Out on Film or Bronze Lens, some of these other festivals do, this is presenting something that's on a whole new level. And, and so that's why we're excited to be working with all those other organizations and, and, and the Sundance folks. How will the live Q&A sessions work? Those are going to be also a mix. I feel like everything I'm saying is a few different things. So we're going to have very limited uh, Q&As attached to the screenings kind of at the same moment. Drive-ins aren't really conducive to Q&As because there's usually a mix of people who want to stay and don't stay. And somebody you know turns their car on and their lights on and starting to leave. That's really kind of interruptive to being able to do a Q&A immediately after. So we're going to have some some limited kind of opening remarks at Q uh, at the drive-in screenings. When there's opportunities to do Q&As uh, in the safe indoor space following the screenings, we're going to do that. But we're going to see something we don't normally, which is a lot of that conversation will happen on a, on a different day and time from when the film plays. And, and, and that's just, you know, sort of part of the nature of having such a different format. Uh, but will make sense. And so that way, if you see it in person or you're seeing it online, there'll be a, a time after the the in-person screening where we're going to host some of these conversations uh, with the filmmakers and sometimes just around the film itself. Since the pandemic outbreak, you've adapted, I've got to say, 
right out of the gate, Chris. In fact, I think you were among the earliest guests we had in March, if I remember correctly. You've adapted and partnered with other Atlanta organizations such as Dad's Garage in order to keep the Placid Theater up and running. What have you learned from this past year's experiences about the importance of being nimble when it comes to these circumstances? I've learned that it is it is important to keep trying no matter what. I've learned that you can either sink by yourself or rise up with those around you. You know, the Plaza and the Atlanta Film Society would not be where it is today from the last nine months were it not for the partnership with each other, but were it not for the partnership with our friends like at Dad's Garage, were it not for the moment of attention and opportunity we get with folks like you guys, but also were it not for the outpour of support from the community who have who have donated, who have just shown the support on social media, were it not for the tremendous amount of work and willingness to roll up their sleeves from the Plaza and Film Society staff among, you know, amidst probably one of the scariest chapters in both of these organizations, you know, half a century or more than half a century history. And so, you know, this this only we're only still here because of all of these things. And had one of these things not been part of the equation, I don't know that I could have said the same statement. And so to me, it's just underlined that, you know, even when things are unclear or uncertain, it's worth trying. It means that you need to rely on your friends and, and like-minded people more than ever. And, and you need to make sure that, you know, you communicate what you know and don't know and, and that you just try. And people, and that's been the, the moving thing is that people have really, really responded to the attempt to make the best of the situation, keep in mind safety and being smart and being considerate of people's lives and their livelihoods. And, uh, you know, and I just, I have, with all the challenges that this past year has presented, the most overwhelming feeling I've had is gratitude. Now, you are also the producer and director of the Atlanta Film Festival. (laughs) You're still implementing pieces of Sundance in Atlanta. How have you begun to organize and plan for April's Atlanta Film Festival? Well, that's, yeah, so the, as you said, the Atlanta Film Festival is the principal program of the Atlanta Film Society. And that was something that we, as soon as in March, we knew that the 2020 festival would be affected. We knew we had to think ahead to preserving the 2021 festival. And so we opened up submissions early and things like that. What is just remarkable is uh, every year it's very competitive. This past year, we had the submissions open and our team was going ahead and working on the 2021 festival before the 2020 happened. And while that's always true for a little bit of time, it was very true for 2020. And so we've gotten even more submissions to our surprise uh, for the 2021 festival, to the tune of 800 more. We have over 9,300, almost 9,400 submissions for the 2021 festival. And these are films and screenplays. And if you think about that is at least 94, almost 9,400 works of art from individual or teams of artists from literally around the planet. That is such an 
a humbling idea <laughs> that our team get has the privilege to go through all of those, review those, consider those for what will be whittled down to the 150 or so that we get to share with the community here and now with the folks that watch from around the world online. And so we knew we had to plan the festival in a way that did not depend on the situation to get better. It had to be sort of COVID proof, so to speak. And, and so that's why the, the drive-ins become so important. And that's why the extensive measures at the Plaza Theater were so important. That would really be rather impossible were it not for the grant we were able to receive from Invest Atlanta that really allowed us to pursue every measure possible to make that literally the safest indoor space that anyone can enter. And then also making sure that we were fluent to be able to do engaging experiences online. You know, there were elements of, of the 2021 festival that we said, if we can do this, that would be great. But we were no longer holding our breath for things outside of our control. And so that's really allowed us to move forward with confidence and know that we could continue to serve the community, serve the artists whose work we have the privilege and honor to share. And that's what allowed us to be the first annual event to happen in person to some form or fashion in 2020 since the March shutdowns. And what means that hopefully the situation gets better, but we're finding a way to be able to continue to, to serve our community despite the situation. And, and what becomes you know, vital is the opportunity to connect in a way where people are also not you know, concerned for their safety. Like that's, that's so vital as we feel more and more isolated in our homes. 2020 was about hunkering down and preserving and, and, and pivoting. 2021 is going to be about rising up uh, in very much an Atlanta way and about persevering and being able to really resurge. I love how local you are. <laughs> After the pandemic ends and we return to some sort of normal life, do you think online streaming and virtual content could become a permanent part of film festivals? I do. I do. I think it will eventually retreat uh, and not be a primary way. But I, I do think this has opened a new door that uh, will not close. And I think there's a lot of positive things with that. But we have, you know, we've had conversations and you know, everyone in the film site, we're, we're people too. We like, we like movies and TV just like everybody else. And we were talking about how, you know, even though you can watch everything at home, there is something different to being in a space with other people uh, with undivided attention where you are experiencing something together, having, you know, these, these emotional moments together, having, you know, something in sync in real time. And, and you know, it's not just about the size of the screen and the audio and, you know, this and that. It, it really sort of in, in many ways comes down to that undivided attention to the moment and being present. And knowing that there's now other people around you that have, that have experienced the same thing that you have. And in many ways, everything is heightened. You know, um, scary movies are scarier, funny movies are funnier. Uh, <laughs> dramatic moments are, are more, you know, uh, you know, right at the heart. And so... Are you uh, saying this has been a year of intensity and has increased <laughs> our desire for intensity? Yeah, I think it's increased a lot of things, but it's also <laughs> revealed a lot of things. And I think... People used to say, I like going to theater because I like seeing it big and I like, you know, the, the sound and this and that. But I think it's really revealed 
a less tangible but just as important part of that communal experience. And that's not, you know, unique to the cinema. It's it's true for theater. It's true for going to the museum. It's true for experiencing art as a community and in person. And I and I think the virtual side has opened up a lot of possibilities. And I think will always now be around as a tool for which we engage the community. And if anything has also underlined how so many of us have rather been ignorant to, uh, aside from so many other things, that there's a portion of the community that has been stuck at home for far beyond sooner than we have. And now realizing what that's like and, and experiencing that firsthand and realizing we are not serving those folks when we don't create at least an option to be able to be involved and to be able to participate. And so I think that's really opened certainly our eyes in that element, um, among other things. Chris Escobar, beyond the visual medium you so love, you are truly a visionary. Thank you so much for everything you do and for how beautifully you add to our cultural life in Atlanta. Well, I'm taking your cues, Lois, so thank you. Chris Escobar is the executive director of the Atlanta Film Society and producer of the Atlanta Film Festival. The Sundance Film Festival runs from January 28th through February 3rd. More information about where and how the films will be shown can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The traditional Mexican music, known as Son Jarocho, is the subject of Kabir Sigal's documentary, Fandango at the Wall. The film attests to the unifying power of music culminating with the festival at the U.S.-Mexico border. Sigal is a prolific author, as well as a multi-Grammy-winning music producer. I spoke with him in September, ahead of the Fandango screening at the Atlanta Film Festival. This film, Fandango at the Wall, looks at how uh, we have shared music between our countries. And so it follows my friend Arturo O'Farrell, who's an incredible New York musician, multi-Grammy awarding musician, he and I travel to Veracruz, Mexico to find the masters of this incredible mystical tradition, San Jorocho music. And then we recruit them essentially and ask them to join us at a festival, a music festival at the border wall between Tijuana and San Diego. And we play a concert with musicians on both sides of the border. And we transform this object, which is meant to divide us, into one that unites us. It's magnificent. Now, Arturo O'Farrell is a revered musician, as you point out. He figures prominently on screen and early on, he equates music with justice. What was Arturo O'Farrell's role in the development of the film? Arturo and I were having dinner together, and we have probably worked on five albums together, produced his, his projects. And we were thinking about what to do next. And he said, you know, I came across this article 
in the newspaper about a man, a librarian, named Jorge Francisco Castillo. And he has created a festival at the San Diego border every year, and they orchestrate this cross-border Fandango. The festival is called Fandango Fronterizo. And I said to Arturo, this sounds like our next project. This was in 2016. And so then I started uh, calling. I said, Arturo, I'm going to go ahead and call this man. And so I started calling all of these different libraries in San Diego, trying to find this librarian. And I finally found him. And I said, hello, my name is Kabir. I'm a music producer and musician. May I come to your festival? Maybe come to your festival, Arturo and I, and, uh, and learn about your festival. And he said, sure. And that's how the project began. And Arturo and I are the music directors of this project. So Arturo leads the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra in New York. And they tour around the world, or they used to, <laughs> pre-pandemic. And um, he really wanted to honor the San Jorocha music, meet the incredible maestros of San Jorocha music. But also, we wanted to perform a concert at the border wall that tears down borders within musicians. So what does that mean? There's not just physical walls, there's walls that we create in our minds. You know, different types of music is often considered a border. So on the project, you're gonna hear San Jorocha music, there's big band jazz music, and it's all coming together. It's, we try to, felt, we have musicians who play, who come from the Middle East, who perform at the border wall with us. We're agnostic to geography, we're agnostic to music, musical tradition. So the Border Wall concert was really conceived by Arturo, he's an artistic genius, to say, you know what? Not only do we need to talk about justice um, through music, we need to demonstrate it by the music we play and the people who we include in our project. So Fandango at the Wall tears down borders. And I've just gotta say one thing about justice within music. Sonar Rocha music, is music that goes back 300 years. The song La Bamba, which many of us know, actually goes back hundreds of years. It's a protest song. And many times, you know, the artists are the ones expressing what they want to see in the world. They're characters in the movie that are using the lyrics to demand justice and uh, more equality. And so they're doing it in a way that appeals to your hearts and minds. And they're talking about things that are real, very real. So I encourage you to think about how music, you've asked the question, how music and justice play a role. This project is all about showcasing how music can tear down borders and can also fell the mental walls that we create between ourselves. Continuing on the topic of the style of San Jarocho, the music strikes me as sentimental in the best sense of that word. It is emotional and direct, 
the musicians speak in poetic metaphors. A younger musician describes an elder as he is the trunk and we are its roots. And then you introduce us to the various instruments, including a man who crafts some of the finest of those instruments. Kabir, what was your reaction when he spoke about Jimi Hendrix? In our movie, Fandango at the Wall, there's a, a character, Ramon Gutierrez, and he lives in a, a town in Veracruz. And, you know, we asked about what are his, who are his musical heroes? And he cites Jimi Hendrix. And we were surprised to hear that because you, don't, you wouldn't think about that. You wouldn't think that would be one of his musical heroes. But I think what really spoke to Ramon about Jimi Hendrix was Hendrix's expression of freedom. And he says in the film, he doesn't always hit the right note, but that doesn't matter. That's not the point. It's not hitting the right note. The point is expressing yourself and being true to yourself and being authentic. And it just shows that a musician living in a distant part, a remote part of Veracruz can be influenced by musicians in the United States and vice versa. We hope that um, artists, creative people who see this film, who are in Atlanta, who are in New York, who are all over the United States will be influenced by the incredible legendary San Jorge artists that they see from Veracruz, Mexico. We're all connected. Indeed. What first appeared to me as flamenco dancing actually turns out to be something quite practical. What is the role of dance in the Sonharocho ensembles? The dancer is the drummer. And there's a historical reason for this. When Mexico was a Spanish colony, there were musicians playing on the drums. But the Spanish... Colonials, they banned drums. They banned drums because they thought it was an instrument that fomented protest. It was quote-unquote revolutionary music. And the patterns on the drums, they made their way onto the dance board, which is called the tarima. It's a wooden platform that San Jorge artists dance on. And you can almost, there's a, there's a similarity between the pattern that the dancers dance on the trima. It's called the zapateado. The dancers are doing the zapateado on the trima. And the drums that you might hear, the drum patterns you might hear in other Latin American countries. So whenever you go to a fandango, the most important thing is who's bringing the trima? Because you cannot start a fandango without a trima. And everyone then circles around the trima. The dancers start dancing on the trima. And that's when the guitar or the harana begins. So the, tr the dancing is the heartbeat. The dancing is the percussion of San Jorocho music. In the course of the film, we get to know these musicians intimately. You take us into their homes, 
we hear their concerns and we see their families. And everyone conveys their artistry effectively. I have to confess for having a favorite among those we meet, Kabir. Would you please talk about Fernando the poet and Versadora? <laughs> Fernando is um, just a remarkable individual. He is a poet and he is able to improvise decimas. These are poems that are about 10 lines long and he can rhyme them at will. And he's able to convey such rich and vivid poetry in his music. So Fernando, um, he lived in the mountains of Veracruz. And as someone who is trying to improve the lives of farmers and people who work in the lands. And he has a rich vocabulary having worked you know, in, in Veracruz and on the farm in the cooperatives. And throughout the film, we, you know, showcase individual artists, but then we get to Fernando and that's when it gets real. He starts talking about issues of justice and fairness and politics and society. And as he says, we demand justice through our verse, through our poetry. And this is how we express ourselves. Writer and producer Kabir Sigal. We'll hear more about his documentary, Fandango at the Wall, after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. We're back with the author and producer Kabir Sigal. His documentary, Fandango at the Wall, explores the multicultural tradition of San Jorocho music, culminating with a festival at the U.S.-Mexico border. How does what we learn in the film make us aware of the multiple cultural identities that go into being Mexican. There's not one Mexican culture. It's not a monolithic culture. There's no one music that defines Mexico, just in the same way that there's not one type of music that defines or represents the United States. There are actually many Mexicos within Mexico. There are many United States within the United States. And there are people in Mexico City, we were doing the post-production of the film in Mexico City because we wanted this to be a cross-cultural collaboration. 
who were unfamiliar with the San Hirocha tradition. San Hirocha music is one of the very few places in Mexico where you see the significant influence of Afro-Mexican, where slaves came on slave ships and landed because Veracruz is a port city and port state. And so I hope when people watch the film, they'll see a, a slice of Mexico that they may not be familiar with. They'll see how the middle class uh, copes with their situation, their lives, how they try to make music, how they discuss the violence that's happening around them, how they think about um, immigration. As Fernando says, people don't leave their country because they want to. Why do they want to go to a place so far away? They, they leave because they have to, because of the violence. But then there's also a conversation about, well, we also need to try and make it here in Mexico. So this is a very real conversation about immigration. And also you asked about kind of the where we come from. Fernando's poetry, you're right. He talks about how we're all interrelated. What is a Mexican? Well, there's the indigenous, there's the African, there's the Spanish elements. And there's a mixture of all these different facets that we explore through the poetry of this music. And it's not just the poetry, it's the music, the actual tonalities. So there's a scene in this film where we show Rahim Al-Hajj, who is an oud player from Iran. And he's playing on the oud, and Fernando and Patricio de Hidalgo are playing on the harana. And you wouldn't think that they would go together, but when you hear the music, you realize they're musical cousins because the music of Andalusia, the music of Southern Spain, those tonalities, those minor thirds, that's the kind of music that came during the Spanish colonialist days. So you have musically, we're cousins separated, not at birth, but this, this film shows that we're not just connected through the poetry and the lyrics, but also musically, we're talking the same language because we were we come from the same musical traditions in many cases. Yes, and it, it does that beautifully. That theme is brought out beautifully in the film. Indeed, what so many people think is characteristically Spanish music is the influence of North Africa that made its way into Spain. And those minor key melodies, the strumming. Uh, it's not only extraordinary, but it brings to mind Yo-Yo Ma and what he set out to do with the Silk Road Ensemble, showing this commonality among all of us and and how each of us is not only enriched by one another's music, but we may contain each other's music in some form. Would you talk about how the film culminates? Fandango at the Wall is very much a journey. I think many people who see the film, this will be their introduction to San Hirocha music. And I certainly hope so. And I hope that people will be enveloped by the journey as we go from Veracruz, Mexico. We, we find these master musicians to the border wall where we have incredible 
an incredible performance at the San Diego Tijuana border. And we also wanted to bring this music to where I was living at the time, our hometown of New York. So we bring, we invite the Sonorich artist to a wonderful performance at Symphony Space in New York. And there's a reason we did this. At the border wall, at Tijuana, San Diego, the border wall is actually made out of kind of a mesh. And you can put your finger up to one of the little empty spaces and you can just touch fingertips or pinky tips with someone on the other side. And we, we started calling this the high pinky salute. So among the camera crew and everyone on the team, we would just give high pinky salutes to everyone. But we started to call this another term, which is the Fandango doctrine, like foreign policy through art and foreign affairs through art. And so we wanted to bring the Fandango to different parts of the world. And so in New York, the film culminates in us performing a Fandango, having a great Fandango at the symphony space. One glorious moment in the film is when a musician says, this wall is not dividing us, it's uniting us. And I think the portion of the film that has the Fandango from Turizo, that concert at the wall, it is positively stunning. I didn't think you could outdo it. But when we get to symphony space, I mean, I, I just can only imagine that people who see the film are going to stand up and cheer at the end of this. I, I just want to ask before we go, Kabir, in the 30s and 40s, I guess through the height of the Cold War, the U.S. State Department had jazz ambassadors. Uh, it was a type of soft diplomacy that, not surprisingly, was very effective because who can resist the likes of Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald in Russia or Cuba. And those are just two of the musicians. Do you see this project on your part in the same spirit as the jazz diplomacy? I certainly hope so. I hope that this is a continuation of the role that jazz has played over the decades, jazz has been a music of protest. It's been a music of freedom. And it's been a music that represents, I think, the best of America. And so in this way, I think that Arturo O'Farrell, Jorge Francisco Castillo coming together and performing uh, music together is an example of the way America can be. You know, it was back in the 19... 20s and 30s that you had blacks and whites performing together. Jazz is one of the first parts of American civil society that was integrated. So in jazz, you had an image of what America could be. You had an image of what America could become. 
And in the same way, the last many years, the um, diplomatic relationship between the United States and Mexico has soured. But when people see this film, I hope they are able to imagine what U.S.-Mexico relations could be. So in this way, I hope that our film Fandango at the Wall helps create a new narrative and helps to show what U.S.-Mexico relations can become again. And music can be ahead of our times. And I hope that this film challenges people to think about their beliefs about immigration, the border wall, and realize that we're actually more alike than, than, than we're not. We're actually more alike than different. And so I'm glad you asked about that because I, I certainly hope when we, when we set out to make this project, Varda Barkar, the incredible director on this project, that was one of the goals was to see how we can focus the music on telling a story that creates positive change. Author and producer Kabir Segal, his documentary with Arturo O'Farrell, Fandango at the Wall, can be streamed online through HBO. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from author Robert Jones Jr. about his acclaimed new novel, The Prophets. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.